with Brigham Young, it's something we all kind of have to grapple with with his racism and his racist statements. Brigham Young is probably not just sitting in heaven right now with the same racist sentiments, right? He's probably learned and he's probably changed. So we don't really have to worry as much about his current beliefs. But what we do need to worry about is how his language still impacts our lives today. And as I study this stuff, I realized that even though I looked at racist humor and racist uh, musical performances, you know, in the early 1900s, there is still racist humor prevalent in BYU today. Just within my time at BYU, I think it was fall 2018, there was a student that wore blackface for a Halloween costume. And so I think for me, the important thing is, like it's really jarring to learn about these historical things, right? It's obviously not comfortable and it's not happy to learn that there are racist ideas at BYU, but it's less of uh, feeling responsible for that and more feeling responsible of identifying how these have changed than taking action and saying, okay, well, how can I personally identify this humor now and shut it down whenever I can. Time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. This one is exciting to me because I said I was going to do a thing and then I actually followed up and did a thing. If you've been a listener of The Cultural Hall for a really long time, you know that sometimes I have really great, big, grand ideas and for whatever reason, uh, maybe life gets busy or I just sort of forget or I get distracted by the new thing, I don't go and actually do the thing that I say I'm going to do. Well, earlier in the semester, we had the folks from the BYU Slavery Project on. That was Matt and Chris, the professors. And we said, hey, what is this whole project uh, that you guys are doing? They said, well, here's what it is. And I said, well, let's talk about some of the things. And they said, no, we haven't even done the class yet. And I said, okay, well, in the future, let's get some of the students back on to report about what they did. And that's what this episode did. It's all about studying slavery at, in, and around BYU, right? So it's different, uh, it's different thoughts, it's different teachings. It's very, very fascinating to hear uh, where the intersection of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and BYA, which you'll learn to be Brigham Young Academy uh, and uh, Provo and all that has interplay with attitudes around slavery. It's a great episode. It's a pressing episode. It's a needed episode. Let me uh, say episode no longer and just play this one for you. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I'm excited about this because if you remember back in late 2020, uh, we had the guys from down at BYU. Now, I should say the guys is two professors, Christopher Jones and Matthew Mason. Uh, talking about the BYU Slavery Project. If you missed the initial introduction to this, I'll put in the show notes our discussion that we had before. They basically said, hey, we're doing this cool thing at BYU this semester. We've never done it before. We're putting it together. And I said, well, what kind of uh, you know feedback? What kind of things have you guys learned? And they said, no, 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 you're not hearing us. We have never done this before. So we don't really know. Matt, why don't you give us a good idea of what this this BYU Slavery Project even is? Yeah, uh, it's a uh, it's a project to study BYU's early history and uh, relationship with slavery uh, and race, both African Americans and Native Americans in, uh, in particular. What are the constraints? Is it only um, in Utah? Is it the West? Kind of some of that. Yeah, we've been interested in broad contexts. Uh, in the class, we studied what other universities have found as they've studied their relationship with slavery and their early. Uh, history. Much of the research people did, of course, was putting uh, early BYU history in context of, say, the West or of um, of even Utah history. But we always were paying attention to the broad context in which uh, BYU acted and BYU people at BYU were acting and thinking. And uh, I'll go to Chris for this. There are, I would imagine that there, there's a lot of interest in this, especially given the current climate. How are students able to be able to participate in this? Is this a, I fill in the numbers on my registration and I'm able to be in? They qualified or who are the kind of people that study this? Richie, you're revealing your age a little bit. They all do this online. They don't have to manually fill in any cards anymore. But uh, oh, okay. that was, that was right. me too. So I get it. Um. Yeah, so uh, the class had about uh, 15 spots in it, um, and we had about 25 students uh, reach out to us and send along a very sort of informal application. Here's why I'm interested. Here's why this is uh, important or, or I'm interested in participating. Uh, and then Matt and I met, and we went through these applications and made some really hard decisions. Uh, all 25 applications we received were fantastic. Some of BYU's best and brightest students. 
Uh, and we selected, I think in the end, 14 of them. Is that right, Matt? How many we ended up having in the class? And uh, yeah, so we we tried to um, draw from across majors because this is a history class. Uh, we had a number of history majors uh, participate, but we also had sociology majors, Africana studies minors, uh, family history majors uh, that were attracted to the class as a kind of research intensive seminar. Uh, focusing on a particular time, a particular place, a particular topic, uh, and we had a really great time together. And I'm excited because we're we're honored to be able to be joined by four of those 14 uh, students and be able to get to know them a little bit, why they were even interested in doing this, and then some of the things that they have learned throughout this first semester. And as I assume, I guess, and before I let you, Chris, and Matt kind of sit on the sidelines while I visit with some of these students, is it something that is a year-long registration, or are they semester, or how, how does that all work? Yeah, we had this this first semester where uh, students did the research that you're about here represented, and then there will be some ongoing elements of research. We as a committee need to discuss that, but then the next formal iteration of this will be next fall semester when we have another class sort of like this, but building on the research that's already already been done. And that's, of course, assuming that school exists in the fall of 2021. I think we all have to kind of just take a big collective breath and, and hope that that I'm teasing. Of course, I'm not making any sort of announcement. I want to start first with uh, Daisy. You're part of this class. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, why you would be interested in doing this, what your major is, and then let's uh, unpack some of the stuff that you learned. Yeah, so I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I am Mexican-American. I'm a history minor. I recently declared history minor. Um, my major is sociology. Um, I have a very big interest in marginalized communities, um, helping the vulnerable, and understanding the history of oppressed communities in the United States. Um, so this class definitely appealed to my interest in just understanding the African-American narrative in the United States. Now, something yeah. that you introduce is that, you know, that you yourself are a Mexican-American, maybe a marginalized uh, population. Would you define yourself as something like that? I, I wouldn't define, I, I don't feel like I've been marginalized myself personally. My parents, I feel that they have, and people that are close to me in my family. So my parents are immigrants. They, they came here legally, wanting a better life when they were very young. And um, I have seen how this, um, how our government system, how our many systems in society have oppressed them and have made their lives much harder than needed to be. So there's a lot of these things I would imagine then hearing you say some of that stuff that really brings it to home, right? Now, no one in your family has been a slave to anyone, but that you can certainly have a certain amount of empathy with these things that, that you studied throughout the semester. Yeah, definitely. And especially the... Um, the community that I'm that I lived in and I grew up in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, South Phoenix, on the outskirts of um, downtown Phoenix. I, I live in a neighborhood that is predominantly black mm. and that is very low income. There's a lot of homeless people that are black in my neighborhood um, walking around. It's highly just visited by policemen. And so I, I go outside when I'm home and I see this community just experiencing the repercussions of slavery mm, mm. and the repercussions of racism in the United States. And it, it hits home. It does. So you hear about this class and was it an automatic thing? And, and you mentioned that you just recently uh, declared to be a history minor. Is it this class that was influential to, to get you to declare that way? So it wasn't this class. It was my Latino civil rights seminar. Mm. I, I traveled to Texas and met some um, activists that were Latino. Um, I actually saw this on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Jones posted the flyer on it and I, it was immediate. I, especially because Dr. Jones <laughs> tweeted it, I, I, I appeal to his tweets a lot. So it was an immediate thing. I, I did want to apply right away. I want to clarify for a certain generation of people, when we hear Dr. Jones, we think of Indiana Jones and that's not <laughs> what she's referencing. She's re referencing Christopher Jones, because as soon as you said that, I was like, wait a minute, what am I? Oh, Christopher Jones, the, the one of the professors uh, that is here yeah, chatting sorry. with us. Dr. Christopher Jones, yeah. the historian at BYU. So, so you decide you want to be a part of it. So let's let's unpack some of the things that you've been studying and that you've learned. Yeah, definitely. So I looked into the sentiment that 
LDS immigrants from Great Britain had as a collective, right? Uh, which was very hard to do. You had to generalize. I had to organize just the different perspectives that I found. I focused on two databases. One really big database that I focused on was one where there are about 1,000 journal entries from LDS British immigrants, mm-hmm. um, and they were travel entries. So they wrote in their journals regarding their trip, um, usually about three months long. It was usually from Liverpool to certain ports such as New Orleans, which is the one I focus on since it was the South. It would be more probable that they would see slavery, they would see the, the slave trade there. Mm-hmm. So I focused on that. And what I found was a diaspora, of course, of type of sentiment. Uh, What I did um, not find was a strong, adamant pro-slavery sentiment from LDS British immigrants. Hmm. There was no outright hatred or support for having Black people as slaves and reasons to justify it. I didn't find any of that. Mm I, I did find a lot of neutral to anti-slavery sentiment in the journal entries. And the reason why this was important to look at, it was important to look at the LDS British immigrants' perspectives because we want to see what type of influence BYU had available. So we're in BYU Academy or BYU University. Were these LDS British immigrants' perspectives strong enough or did they make some type of influence at BYUA or BYU so that BYU, I guess what I'm trying to say is, did BYU or BYUA have to be racist or did they have to support slavery? Mm-hmm. Did they have communities within the school that supported anti-slavery sentiment? And so I was looking for that. I was looking to see if LDS British immigrants brought that to the plate or brought that to the table at BYUA or BYU. So when you talk about these sort of anti-sentiments that um, that might have been expressed, whether they were neutral or they were anti-sentiments, was it the was it an essential parroting back of what leaders would have said? Like we know we have early comments from like the Prophet Joseph Smith and other people about slavery. Was it just them reiterating what had already been said or was it sort of original thought and or speech surrounding something that would be either neutral towards slavery or anti-slavery? So I found it to be very original. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of reiteration of what our leaders in the past have said about slavery. So what I did see a lot of was, for example, the, the traveler would be um, making observations like, oh, we were on the Mississippi River. You know, there's all this greenery. We saw uh, the black slaves working in the fields. Mm. So it's, it, a lot of the, the entries were just these very nonchalant comments of their observations and they wouldn't say much about it they wouldn't say what their opinion was but they just said oh there is a black slave Hmm. and then move on to their next observation of what the united states was like so yeah it was a it was a lot of original thought and more of like personal observations was was that something that surprised you did you think that the the saints that would be coming from england would be far more adamantly against it or that you would find more opportunities of them saying, oh, no, we slaves just like we would have, or they would be more pro? Or, or what was your feeling as you as you kind of came to the end of your study on that? Yeah, so my initial thoughts were, oh, of course, I'm going to find strong anti-slavery sentiment. I mean, Great Britain has had so much time with anti-slavery sentiment and trying to pass these anti-slavery laws, and they had already tried to slowly outlaw it and stop the trade. But it wasn't really the case. I didn't find a lot of strong anti-slavery sentiment or or the uh, or the support for abolition. So and the reason why my thoughts were proved incorrect is because um, Great Britain was also this big diaspora, this had this big spectrum of what anti-slavery meant Mm -hmm. and what they wanted to do. I mean, Um, A lot of people were anti-slavery, but they didn't want to necessarily abolish it right away. They didn't feel that that was the correct way to go about it. And some people were skeptical about the economic repercussions. So I I expected this strong anti-slavery sentiment, but I was wrong to do that because there there was this giant diaspora in in Great Britain that Mm -hmm. even though they were Christian and LDS, 
they they still had various opinions to go on how to handle slavery. Okay, well, let's take a break real quick. When we come back, I want to pick it up. We've got three other students that we're going to be visiting with to find out what they learned over this semester as they've been working with the BYU Slavery Project. We'll take a break and come back in the second block and pick it right back up. Hey, it's me, Richie T. I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands, and maybe you're finding yourself in that same position. Well, allow me to introduce you to Best Podcast Consultant in Utah. I don't have the domain. And, and really, I can do this wherever because I'm doing most of the classes virtually. But if you would like to reach out to me, uh, probably the simplest way is if you just do contact at theculturalhall.com or you can find me online, richietstedman.com. You can check that out. I would love to help you if you are already established in podcast or you're thinking, you know what? I've got this downtime. It's a passion project. I've always wanted to do it. You can reach out to me. You can do contact at theculturalhall.com or find me on any social media at richietstedman. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer is ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware. Plus, scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years, and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together, so just go to PCLaptops.com and we'll get you taken care of. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, encourage you to do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It is a great way for you to financially support um, that which we are doing here. It gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that exists only if you are a Patreon saint. So find us and, uh, and, and become. Do it. There are literally hundreds of people who are Patreon saints and you're missing out. Have I given you FOMO yet? You should have it. Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. As we pick up here in the second block, the uh, BYU Slavery Project, and now we visit with Abby. Now, Abby, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and how you came to know about the project and be uh, have the desire to be interested in it. Yeah, so I'm from Minnesota. I was born and raised there my whole life. Um, I live like or lived like 15 minutes away from Minneapolis, so pretty close to like the metro area. And I first heard about the project from uh, Dr. Jones's Twitter. I think this is honestly just like a, a couple hour ad for how you should follow Dr. Jones on yeah. Twitter. Cause it's great, but follow him on Twitter. But I heard about it there and it was just like basically, I was like, oh, I have to like reach out and see if I can be a part of this. I study history and um, honestly, like the, the aha moment that I had when I first realized that I loved history was back when I was in high school. And I think I was either freshman or sophomore and I was super like anti-history. I was like, this doesn't appeal to my life. This doesn't like have anything to do with anything. I hate this. You know, mm-hmm. it's really boring the, and whatnot. The joke is, it's the past. Get over it. Oh, it's exactly. So, yeah. yeah, and now that's my whole profession, which is funny. Um, but but the thing that made me change my mind was we were learning about um the Civil War and we were learning about Reconstruction. And for the first time, I realized how like I made that connection between like what like the failures of the civil war and you know reconstruction to racism today and like how i could see like the inequality and the racism that i saw growing up in minnesota right and this has kind of been a hot spot recently Mm -hmm. um i could observe that from history and and i'm like oh my gosh i understand now better because i know the past and so race has always been something that i've been really interested in studying and so when i saw that they're doing this specifically about byu which Mm -hmm. is also like very close to home i was like i want to see if i can be a part of this yeah, it's interesting when as soon as you said Minnesota, my my ears perked up and went, "Well, wow, this yeah. is I mean, this is very much some would say even the crux of the latest movement as far as so many things with um, you know, civil rights and 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 race and those things." So, uh you become a part of this project and what is it what was the scope of what you studied and what did you find? So, I originally kind of set out to study what BYU students extracurricular life was like. How did race um, kind of appear? How was it presented? What were kind of attitudes reflected outside of the classroom? And the more that I studied, the more I kind of um, pinpointed to like 
uh, the main area of entertainment. So we're talking like modern day extracurricular activities for students at BYU? No, yeah, sorry. So okay. this was early, so early 1900s, so uh, like late 1800s, early 1900s, about from like the eight, late 1890s to like early 1920s, 1930s. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, so it was in that section. And so I found that um, in BYU's entertainment, race came up a lot. And it was super interesting. So I focused mostly on the joke sections of the white and blue, which is one of BYU student newspapers during that uh, period of time Mm -hmm. and different like musical and entertainment, like plays and all that stuff. And race was present a lot in that, which is really interesting. Well, you see in that time, certainly the idea of a minstrel show as part of vaudeville and and some of those other things, which wouldn't be exclusive to... Uh, BYU or Utah at that time or, or were there other things that you went wait we used to celebrate this as entertainment that that kind of came to the forefront definitely yeah so I was really shocked by minstrel shows I mean I knew that they're really prevalent but considering Utah's uh, we always visualize it as kind of like outside everything you know like it's not really the west but it's also like not really the north you know but it was really prominent there they had traveling minstrel shows that would come through Utah that were really popular. They were advertised in BYU student newspapers, so they were pretty big. Um, but then I also found that BYU students and faculty participated in minstrel shows mm-hmm. um, where they would have these really big fundraisers every year in Provo um, in like the early 1900s or sorry, like the 1920s, where um, a BYU professor would organize this really big minstrel show and it would raise money for Provo's Boy Scout troops. So I was kind of surprised by that. But then in addition to that, um, in BYU student newspapers, we also found that outside of minstrel shows, they had uh, music performances where they sang what they would call Negro songs. Mm-hmm. That were songs that were either about the Black community or um, like written by the Black community that were then like, um, not like satirized, but essentially um, they would just mock them in very racist ways. And they were really popular. Um, they like they had... Um, like all these different reviews that would be in the student newspapers. And they would say like, oh, there's like this Negro song was super popular or students asked this professor to sing this song um, with this racist dialect. They would use stereotypical accents to kind of make fun of these communities. That was really big with the students as well. Mm-hmm. So that was really uh, a big prominent part of their entertainment. I realize that we made the assumption that everyone knows what a minstrel show is. Would you care to share? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a minstrel show is, there's kind of like two main points. A minstrel show, originally, it was kind of a group of Black entertainers that would then perform music. But, you know, as time passed, it slowly became white, um, a group of white entertainers that would then dress up as Black people. They would smear Black paint from burnt cork all over their face, make exaggerated features um, that were, that they would use to stereotype Black people. And then they would sing in really racist um, like accents and they would you know essentially basically um, use these black characters to just make fun of this entire culture and they were incredibly popular across the entire United States. But especially as you mentioned sort of these reviews that you would find from the school paper and faculty and students participating in these things was that something that shocked you or lived to the expectation that you had as you'd study that time? I feel like I don't know I'm still I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what my initial expectations were because I feel like as Latter-day Saints we have this hope that we're kind of above that that mm-hmm. we recognize that you know those kinds of acts are bad um but it's always shocking in that aspect right because you never want to know that your alma mater has you know put on blackface shows but in some ways it kind of reaffirmed things that we know about racist history especially during the period and of the church so it's kind of a little bit of both I would say one of the things that I appreciate about um student newspapers is that there is oftentimes the counter voice that is shared, uh, although it may be just a small voice or just an individual that works for that. Did you see any of that coming out as you studied where people would share anti-slavery or anti-minstrel or any of those kind of things? People saying this is wrong and we shouldn't do that. Based on my scope, especially like with entertainment, I really didn't see anything. It was a lot of Um, really supportive things for this racism and also I studied the joke sections as well Mm -hmm. and so they would often use have like lots of jokes that would um, depict black people in really terrible lights or you know that you wouldn't even really need a black person to portray the joke but they use with their accent as you know the way to make it funny Mm -hmm. Um, and I never really saw anything pointing that out as Mm -hmm. terrible there you know there might be but I really didn't see anything. Uh, Let's move to uh, uh, yet another student as part of the BYU Slavery Project uh, visiting with Aisha. Give me the scope uh, of, actually, tell me where you are from, uh, where you came at this project. Yeah, for sure. So my name's Aisha. I'm from Provo. 
Um, I've, so I've heard of that. I've heard of Provo. I'm glad that you <laughs> took the trip from uh, where you are from to go to a different place. I'm just teasing. Go ahead. It's super far. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm an art major and I have minors in sociology and Africana studies. Um, so history was a whole new ball game for me, but I've absolutely loved it. So that was great. So what, what's the attachment then? Because it, to me, that doesn't make an automatic attachment to something like this. Yeah, so um, I, I started out as an art major and then I slowly, slowly added sociology, then Africana studies. And um, my goal is to go to graduate school and study um, more race and ethnic studies and sociology. And so this class was completely what I wanted to learn about. And um, also I, I'm mixed. I have, um, I'm a fourth African-American and um, my parents are, were born and raised in Europe. And so I've had that mixed background and it's been um, both something that I've pursued um, academically, but also um, personally in my identity, um, just learning more about um, race in America and its complexities. And um, I think also BYU and the church and, and just Provo area in general, I think there's a lot of history here that um, needs to be uncovered and learned about. So I was really excited to be a part of the project. Yeah, look no further than when it first came out, the several people that had no idea of um, Abraham Smoot's relation to slavery that went, wait, no way, that could, oh, you know, and sort of leaned in a a after the, you know, sort of not ever anything that was hidden necessarily, but certain things, certainly something that wasn't talked about nearly as much as it has been in the last year. So you got to designate your own scope for this. What did you decide to study? Um, so I wanted to research more about the way that BYA taught um, about race in their curriculum. So I focused it really on BYA specifically, which was from 1876 to 1903. And um, in general, in the U.S., there was um, pseudo race sciences being taught um, just all around, just um, emphasizing racist ideologies that were supposedly proven by science. So I wanted to see if BYU had similar um, teachings. And then I also wanted to just look generally how um, classes such as civil society, history, things like that, how they also depicted race. So um, yeah, it was it was interesting learning about it. Um, my The main thing that I pulled from it was that the way that the teachers and students talked about race was one of strong um, white superiority hmm. more than it was to necessarily support slavery or support um, traditionally racist institutions, perhaps more on the East Coast. And I found that BYA had a unique way of talking about race, particularly in the way that they saw themselves as um, Anglo-Saxon, majority Anglo-Saxon Christian um, individuals needing to lift up the Native Americans around them, the um, Polynesians when they traveled further for missionary work, even talking about Chinese immigrants and talking about the way that these groups were either savage or primitive or almost intelligent, but were never quite as um, superior or as developed as their white culture. So that was the main thing that I pulled and learned from what I studied. Very simply put, it sounds like what you're what you're describing is sort of that white savior mentality. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yes. Which is interesting too, with all, within all of these things, but certainly as we on some level, each of us different are, are people of faith and then recognizing a faith that has sort of this past with it. I mean, we're looking at the academics of the university and can look at it from, from an institutional sense, but then also the institution is a representation of religion. And so then we have some, some dissonance that we go, wait a minute, how do I feel about this, that this is the faith that I ascribe to? And, 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 and some, some people would call it maybe the bruises or the, or the scars along the way. That we find was there things that you were surprised that uh, BYU or I'm sorry BYA it's hard to get away from that habit BYA taught that were um, that sort of evolutionized within that time period that's 28 years was it constant did it change where it was maybe m more more white superior at the beginning that then sort of transcended or any other things that you observed within that it was pretty much the same throughout. I didn't quite notice a, a shift. It was such a short time period to be able to notice that. But I would be curious to see going into the 1900s how that would shift. I definitely think it would. Um, and I liked what you said about um, just the blurring of the line between academia and the faith aspect, because that was ultimately what I came to is I realized while on the East Coast, a lot of these universities simply supported these racist ideologies with scientific data or 
academia, BYA had the theological aspect as well. And so a lot of the teachers and professors that taught, they had a certain level of um, clerical credibility in what they were saying. They were seen as spiritual leaders. And so that was pretty problematic to see. And I think we can understand that now. I think the, our, our, the, school, the way the school functions is we, we believe in inspiration and religion within academia and seeing the way that they could use racist ideologies and support it with notions that God had ordained them to be better or that based on what they were learning at school, they would then go out and be missionaries in Polynesian islands and have these racist ideas about these groups that they were going to proselyte to. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a blurring of that line, which I think um, we can see some modern day, yeah, yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. Application of that, and 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 in a in a lot of ways, you talk about that blurring and and where we start to take these things from those who can can claim a religious superiority, and we just sort of turn off that logical part of our brain because we go, well, they are my bishop, they are this person, whatever that that thing may be. What we would maybe logically divvy out differently because it's it comes from a religious basis. We just go, well, I mean, this is this is someone who has stewardship or, you know, experience with, with God in a different way. That's, that is a fascinating thing. I hope that you continue to study as into the early 1900s. It would be curious to see sort of a timeline of, of all that through. Um, that's going to be another tweet probably from Dr. Jones where he's like, <laughs> listen, we're doing the first part of the 1900s. Make sure everyone follows him on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Jones, we should promote your Twitter right now since it seems to be so famous. How can people find you and follow you on Twitter? Oh gosh, this is not where I anticipated the conversation going. Um, if if you wish to subject my Twitter feed upon you, you can follow me at ccjones13. Lucky 13. All right, let's get to you, Ariel. You've been waiting patiently. Uh, we've had three students, three of the four that are here on this, uh, be able to kind of report back. Do you guys feel like this has been sort of like the book report? You spent the whole semester and and now you're like, well, I learned that it's your turn, Ariel. Tell me what, uh, where you're from, and then let's get into the scope of what you studied. Yeah, so I'm from West Jordan, and the way that I got involved in the project is because I've taken other classes from Dr. Jones because I'm a family history major, and um, I ended up having an unexpected opening in my schedule, and it was something I thought was really important work, and so I wanted to get involved. And mine kind of intersects with Aisha's study, I focused on religion classes, which of course is the strongest manifestation on campus of the fact that it is a religious university. And so when they started, there was just one religion class because, you know, there weren't that many students. And um, fortunately, BYU keeps an archive of its own history. And I was able to find meeting minutes that were kept by students for that class. And as I went through those, um, they recorded some questions that um, students were asking in the class. And it was very clear from those questions that they were discussing race, um, particularly discussing, um, you know, the theories that were prominent in the early church about racial curses. Right. And so um, such as, you know, we talk about uh, they would talk about the curse of Cain, which was the idea that, you know, that black people were cursed and were less valiant and didn't deserve as much because they descended from Cain. And then they would also discuss the curse of dark skin on who they would call the Lamanites, or as we would know, the Native Americans, because they believed they were descended from the Lamanites. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they did not record the answers to these questions. No, no. (laughs) They were like, we've got some really great questions. Uh, I'm not going to bother with the answers to these questions. I'll just make sure to record it. How frustrating. Yeah. So what I did is I drew upon a um, periodical called the Juvenile Instructor that started about a decade before BYU Academy, the Academy was founded. Therefore, meaning and it was meant for the youth of the church. So basically children, youth, all of that. It's essentially like the children friend of the 1800s. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) And so I used that in the decade leading up to the founding of the school to understand the kinds of media that the students would have been influenced by before coming to the school. And I found a fair amount of articles addressing race um, in the juvenile instructor talking about some of the stuff Aisha mentioned, um, you know, talking about 
scientific explanations for why, you know, white people are superior and other races are inferior. Um, talking about those curses I mentioned earlier. And overall, just at times very harsh um, things that they would say about Black people, about Native Americans. And that kind of helped me figure out what may have been spurring on the questions that students would ask in class, what they might have thought, um, which was really, I mean, pretty mainstream in a sense. Like, yes, we've talked about that Utah, especially in that time, was a rather isolated community. But the fact that they ascribed to things like racial curses is actually part of mainstream Christianity in that time. It was extremely common to talk about the curse of Cain or things like that to justify um, saying that white people were superior and that black people were inferior. But of course, they were more unique in their approach to Native Americans, simply in the sense that it was based in a more doctrinal perspective, a more mm -hmm. religious perspective, mm -hmm. but still approached them with that same like white saviorism that you find throughout the United States at that time. Mm -hmm. It is a, a gross when we when we read of these curses, you know, the, these explanations of curses as to why you know, white people would in fact be better. And, and, and probably reading those, you, you feel all of that just ugh, kind of gross. I can't think of a great word to, ex to explain it, but just kind of that grossness. Was there anything within that, that, that made your mouth be agape that you were like, oh, I had an idea that it was bad. I had a, no idea it was this bad as you sort of studied. Yeah, there was, um, well, there were several shocking ones, but one that comes to mind right away is a passage talking about Native Americans. And it was basically saying that, well, you know, Laman and Lemuel were terrible people and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So it makes sense that their descendants are also terrible people. Yeah. So that's an example of Jeez. Jeez. things I read. Well, and it's interesting. I would, I would, though I haven't asked you guys uh, your ages, I would assume your college age. So early twenties, I think that Matt and Chris could speak to this a little bit. Like, I can remember, and the church has certainly uh, distanced itself from this, but I can remember being in a, a class or in a church building where the idea of the curse was discussed in my lifetime. Could you speak to that, Matt or Chris, or both? Yeah, I was uh, 10 years old when the uh, revelation on the priesthood happened, and that's my first kind of uh, awareness of that issue in the church. But then that means uh, moving in my teenage and post-teenage years, I was in a church where the folklore that had been built up to defend the, the priesthood and temple ban still lingered. I don't remember a ton of talk about curses. There tended to be more kind of fence sitters in the pre-mortal life kind of mm -hmm. kind of thing. But yeah, so I uh, so I've always been grateful that I was so young, that I was mostly raised in church post-1978, but that cultural legacy, is similar to what you described, um, certainly surfaced generally amongst older people, but not only uh, yeah. amongst older people in my experience in the church. What about for you, Dr. Jones? Yeah, I'm not quite as old as Matt. Um, I was <laughs> Nobody born... really is. I mean, nobody... Within sight, it really is. Matt, yeah, Matt, Dr. Mason, Matt was one of my professors when I was a student here at BYU. So I was born in 1983, five years after the revelation on the priesthood. Um, so I've never grown up in a church. I've never been a member of a church that uh, maintained explicitly racist policies of the sort that existed pre-1978. Uh, that said, like Matt, um, I saw in the 1980s and the 1990s and into the 21st century, um, some of the lingering legacies of those uh, earlier teachings and earlier policies. I remember uh, uh, church manuals uh, very softly suggesting that people should only uh, date and marry those of their own race. I remember uh, interracial couples in my suburban Texas uh, ward um, that were looked upon with at least a little bit of, uh, if not suspicion, certainly surprise from some members of the ward. And then I, I spent time as a, as a missionary in the early 2000s in Arizona and spent some time on uh, Apache Indian reservations and heard and uh, uh, discussed with fellow missionaries and members all sorts of um, racist folklore surrounding Native Americans and the reasons that they were the way that they are. That dealt a lot with, uh, kind of circled around these uh, curses mentioned in the Book of Mormon, as opposed to paying attention to 
the broader American history of not only Indian removal, but also, as we discussed in this class, the enslavement of Native Americans here in the American West, including here in Utah by uh, Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. It's interesting that you note that because I think even as recent as the Come Follow Me of last year in the early part had some verbiage that we somehow got past a lot of editors and we all were like, yeah, yeah, no, that's totally what, oh, right, that is a racist sentiment in the heart of it. It is fascinating to see how it has been from the beginning when we think of the, the doctrine that Joseph Smith, you know, both taught and was revealed in the time. Uh, and then as it tr- uh, changes, as it comes here to the to the territory and then state of Utah and then throughout the time, so much of what I think it is, certainly there there were individuals who, in fact, just held racist sentiments and practiced racist things. But I, I think for so many where where they fell into a lot of these racist principles is it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense why black people couldn't hold the priesthood. And so in an effort to try and make sense of it. When someone would say, well, I have an answer, they'd go, oh, I, I don't know that I really believe in that answer necessarily, but it is an answer when I go to other people and they don't have any answer. And so they just, even on a, a light level, sort of ascribe themselves to that. And I think that that's scary because that's also something that we, I feel like we see very much modern day, both in race and in other things, where there are so many people who are like, I don't know about what this virus is. And you people are telling me that it's that it's this and that doesn't make sense. This other thing maybe makes more sense. And so they sort of ascribe it to it. Uh, I'm going to take another break. And when we come back in the third block, we'll have a group discussion about the BYU slavery project. First semester, it's in the books. I want to find out about what grades we got or if we just did pass fail in a time of Corona. We'll talk about that and some of the other things that we learned coming up in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Culture Hall, do not forget that you can always get in contact with us by using our email. Great part about email is that it never closes. I don't want you calling me in the middle of the night, but you're welcome to email me. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. Any question that you have, topic that you would like us to discuss, Maybe there's a new author with a new book that comes out and you'd like us to get them into the cultural hall. Love your recommendations, especially if you are that author or you're doing something of note. It makes it easier if you're the person that I need to get in contact with. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. Please reach out. That may be a future episode of the cultural hall. So we have this big uh, BYU slavery project. Uh, how did how did they do? Matt, Chris, uh, speaking from a, a professor... You know, you have these 14 students. We've heard four of them represented. Is it what you expected they would find and focus on? Um, maybe we'll maybe we'll go to uh, Dr. Mason as to is it, it what you expected they would find? And then, Chris, if you were surprised by anything, maybe that they focused on. So we'll start with start with Dr. Mason. Yeah, I'd say as a general statement, the group of students were absolute rubbish. Yeah. No, they were. I get they that impression. Not, based, they did not disappoint. Based on our discussion today, garbage yeah. students, um, I hope that they change their majors and find something that they might one day be successful in. Not bright yeah. at all, just real dim students. You're right. Yeah. Sarcasm, um, of course, everyone. Yeah, no, they, uh, you know, they, they came through. And um, one of the parts that uh, made that very clear was early in the semester when we had uh, two visitors who had been involved with studying slavery at their universities. Ad, Professor Adam Rothman from Georgetown University had been very involved with this. He zoomed in and we had a fantastic discussion with him. And then uh, Professor Leslie Harris of Northwestern University who's studied these issues both at Northwestern and at Emory University before, or she taught before. When they uh, came in, we had kind of gathered student questions and they were uniformly impressed with the, the student questions. and. From the professor's point of view, these were those conversations were a good example of why we do what we do. 
and why we're privileged to do it at BYU. These, these students were super engaged with asking really smart questions and they ended up being really uh, provocative and illuminating discussions, being able to just pursue the truth amidst the swirling political environment in which we operate, just be able to pursue the truth by doing research. So yeah, we were disturbed by what a lot of the students found, but that's the right approach to disturbing material. And one of the things that struck me is the range of things that this, the students studied. If you add it all up together, we had certain things that we knew we wanted to study. Daisy talked about, uh, we knew we wanted to, from the very beginning, study the British anti-slavery, potentially anti-slavery aspect. And we knew we wanted to study Brigham Young and Abraham Smoot. But some of these others really came from, reached us as a surprise, the range of things that just in semester one, these students were already able to find. So since he sort of stole some of your question, Chris, let me refocus Sorry. my question. Oh, you're fine. I want you That's guys to... I want you to remember. Old men do. <laughs> they just rant. The we have to. Was. We have to click the mute button on the old men so that other people can get a word in edgewise. Uh, remember the kind things that he said to you when you go to evaluate him as your professor. I want you all to remember that, Chris. Then what? As you look towards um, fall of twenty one and continuing this project, what are some things that people didn't even touch upon, or things that you want uh, to go further with? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's still much to be explored. In addition to the uh, topics, the subjects, the, the the four students here with us today talked about, we had students that did really kind of fine-grained analyses of Brigham Young's rhetoric surrounding race and slavery. Uh, we had students that researched Abraham Smoot, uh, his ownership of a handful of enslaved persons here in Utah, as well as the lives of those enslaved persons. Uh, we had students that looked at not only British immigrants to the church, but German immigrants to the church. People like Carl Mazur, who, uh, while he's a missionary back east, spends a, a few weeks um, working, or I guess a couple of months working as a, a mentor to the, a music teacher to the children of uh, John Tyler, who is later president of the United States uh, and a large slave owner uh, in, in uh, James City County, Virginia. Um, we really had a range of, uh, of subjects and topics that students researched, and they laid really great groundwork for the project moving forward. Um, I think a direction that both Matt and I would want to go with this, and kind of a natural progression for this, is to uh, follow up on some of the research that the students have done, dig a little bit deeper, get into some of the source material that they weren't able to. Um, but also, as some of their comments here suggested today, uh, push forward uh, in time into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, when we first announced this project, at least some eyebrows were raised because unlike other universities that have launched similar projects, uh, Brigham Young Academy was founded in 1875, uh, a decade after slavery was legally abolished in the United States. And mm -hmm. so there were some eyebrows raised about what connections could there possibly be, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we obviously defined connections pretty broadly, but we, what we knew going in was that uh, the namesake of the university, Brigham Young, had spoken quite a bit on the subject of slavery. And when we wanted to delve a little bit more deeply into his views and his rhetoric, uh, his teachings surrounding that, we knew that uh, BYA's principal benefactor, Abraham Smoot, um, had been a slave owner. And so we wanted to understand that relationship in a little bit more detail. Uh, and we knew that some individuals here in Utah County uh, affiliated with the university, students, faculty, staff, and so on, had grown up in families with Indian captives, Native Americans that were taken as captives, usually purchased, mm -hmm. um, not always called slaves, uh, but captives, or sometimes they would use the language of adoption, although that uh, I think uh, is a little bit misleading in terms of what's going on in those uh, situations. And even though slavery, African-American slavery is abolished in 1865, uh, those Native Americans who have been purchased by Latter-day Saint families and grow up in these families uh, in the 1850s and 1860s and into the 1870s after slavery has been abolished, even though we don't legally recognize them as slaves. Um, and even as that Native American uh, slave trade dies out during this time, we wanted to look at the legacies. And so uh, Aisha's and Ariel's research uh, looked at the ways in which race and slavery and these legacies factored into early BYU curriculum, right? Uh, Abby's research looked at uh, the ways that racial dynamics in the late 19th and early 20th century 
played out in uh, racist entertainment here in Provo and at Brigham Young University. But more recently, uh, there have been debates on campus uh, that seem to crop up every few years over um, a Confederate flag that is flown from somebody's window in Helaman Halls, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I know Dr. Mason participated in a roundtable on this at BYU just a few years ago that, that uh, the History Department and Africana Studies program sponsored. Um, I would like to look at the legacy of things like the Confederate flag and other symbols of racism and slavery in American society, the way that they have played out here locally, the way that they have played out here on campus. I would like to look at curriculum in the mid 20th century and into the late 20th century that looks at the way that slavery has been taught here at the university by earlier generations of historians kind of turn a, a critical, and I don't mean to criticize, but a, a kind of a thoughtful uh, interrogation to some of mine and Dr. Mason's predecessors here in the history department, um, how they grappled with these issues, how they taught it, uh, and where they drew uh, their research and teaching curriculum from, as well as uh, uh, memory of slavery and the way that it especially has impacted students of color uh, and the increasing number of students of color, Black students, Indigenous students, um, and other students of color here at BYU, especially in the last 40 to 50 years as those numbers have steadily increased. So I want to turn this, the remainder of this time that we have, uh, to be able to visit and kind of gather from you students. You, you are very much pioneers as far as this goes, right? Never done before at BYU. We certainly within the church have this idea of the pioneers we're doing. We're going before everyone else. What was significant for you about this? As you come away from this, what sort of impact does it have on how you engage with others at BYU now? what you hope to see within the church moving forward? Like, what, what is the takeaway? Or was it just a class that assumed by Dr. Mason's comments that you all got A's in and you, you, you walk the aisle and we give you the diploma and we move on? What's the significance of this for each of you and whoever wants to go first? But I'm going to make everyone go. You don't get the option of not going. Abby raised her hand. Go ahead. So for me, one thing that really stuck out with me, that kind of shaped my whole takeaway from this was something that we learned from Dr. Reeve when he spoke with us. Just to clarify, that's Dr. Paul Reeve, oh, yeah. who is with the Mormon studies at the University of Utah. Who knew they studied Mormons at the University of Utah? He is excellent. And he something he said, I still think about like, almost every day, where he said that with Brigham Young, it's something we all kind of have to grapple with, with his racism and his racist statements, where um, we, it's like not really our job. We're not going to have to like, you know, judge him at the last day, right? Because we believe in progression, right, in like um, LDS theology, Brigham Young is probably not just sitting in heaven right now with the same racist sentiments, right? He's probably learned and he's probably changed. So we don't really have to worry as much about his current beliefs, if that makes sense. But what we do need to worry about is how his language still impacts our lives today. And as I study this stuff, I realized that even though I looked at racist humor and racist uh, musical performances, you know, in the early 1900s, there is still racist humor prevalent in BYU today. That was kind of the conclusion of my paper, where just within my time at BYU, I think it was fall 2018, there was the students that wore blackface for a Halloween costume. Um, and the beginning of this year, there was a panel where um, for Black History Month where um, they would people could submit questions and they were put on a, a, a huge screen, um, like a widescreen blank um, in front of everybody. And so when people submitted questions, it could pop up there. And people started submitting um, racist questions like, oh, why isn't there white history month and stuff like that. And it was reported that the reaction to those questions from people in the audience was laughter. And so I think for me, the important thing is, is I don't feel like, like it's really jarring to learn about these historical things, right? It's obviously not comfortable and it's not happy to learn that there were racist ideas at BYU, but it's less of uh, feeling responsible for that and more feeling responsible of identifying how these haven't changed, right? We're still seeing this humor today. And, um, you know, recognizing that I think is a big step for me personally to then taking action and saying, OK, well, how can I personally identify this humor now and shut it down whenever I can? Well said. Aisha, let's do it. I feel like um, the class provided me an amazing community of that was both academic, but also religious. Like it was almost like the Sunday school <laughs> I've always wanted to have. <laughs> and it was it was just so inspiring to be there with a group of people where um, I didn't have to be the sole person to kind of teach about things that I don't even know about. I felt like we were all learning together and there was this level of basic understanding of the complexities and the 
very traumatic and painful things that we were talking about. And I loved being able to talk very openly with the group and talk openly about, you know, the contradictions that we have in our, in our church identity. And it was just very empowering to have that kind of open space and to still be able to engage in a positive and um, solution seeking kind of um, environment. So that was my main takeaway. Daisy. One highlight that I have from this class was Dr. Mason's lecture on memory and studying memory and memorials and how we as humans view history. And one of the things that was talked about was, I think it was during that week, President Oaks went to speak to BYU and he um, made the remark, the historical remark of saying Black Lives Matter. But he also mentioned that something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, that we shouldn't dig too deep into the past because it will bring conflict or tension. And we talked about that as a group in a class. And, you know, what, what were our thoughts? We, and we, I think, we collectively said that it doesn't have to bring conflict. Reckoning and looking into our past and histories does not have to bring conflict. And, and it can actually be very enlightening and it could serve us well. And I don't think this is a BYU problem. I think this is an American problem. But when when you have a wound such as slavery and Black and Native American enslavement, you can't just stop the bleeding by putting on a patch and saying everything is okay. You still have to treat that wound. And I think that a lot of people here at BYU, as I mentioned, think that that just patching something on this wound will be okay and that we we no longer have racism and we no longer have uh, African Americans or people of color being oppressed. And so we I think this class has really taught me to appreciate the the teachings that come from looking into our past and just the teaching that it doesn't have to bring conflict, it doesn't have to bring tension. We don't have to criticize as Dr. Jones mentioned. It could be a very wonderful experience, a very sobering, of course, very sobering experience. Um, but it's it's here to it's there to uh, let us learn from it. All right, Ariel, you waited last the best of all the game. Yeah, so just kind of building off what Daisy said, you know, I think that um, I've always felt like addressing the past and exploring and stuff helps us to better deal with the present. And I think, you know, as we've kind of referenced throughout this, the events of the last year in the United States, I think are indicative of that, that there are these deep wounds that have not been properly addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we also experience that on our campus. And um, I think this class for me really made me feel that even more strongly and gave me more ways to, you know, kind of like Abby talked about to in my own circle of influence to be more of an advocate, to speak out more um, and to know how to address these kinds of things when they happen. Mm -hmm. um, Cause just like Abby said, these things aren't, you know, things that were left in the 1890s and early 1900s, just like her. Um, as I did my research, I found that there was a conflict a few years back where a religion professor was teach. It was talking about these curses mm -hmm. um, with a reporter for the Washington post and talking about them as if that was the teaching of the church. And so those kinds of things are still still with us and we still have to deal with them. For me, and I think some that, that may be listening to this are like, why, why did we have this discussion? Why did we have the book report from this class at BYU? Why did we do this whole thing? And, and something that has impressed on me and, and that we'll continue to focus on here in the cultural hall is um, the prophet. That who we deem who speaks to God and leads the church has admonished us to learn about these things, to see it within ourselves if it exists and to be able to root it out, to be able to see it within our past and recognize what it is for what it is so that we don't perpetuate it into the future or continue it on without knowing that that very thing that we're doing is the thing that we go, no, well, that's not us. That's not us. It's somebody else. It's the other person. It's it's those people over there. It's this. But I mean, I'm not racist. That auto response that so many of us do. So uh, I really appreciate all of the hard work that you guys have done and and being able and willing to come here and be able to share those things. Dr. Mason or Dr. Jones, is there in the future a plan 
a way that people can be able to read this information as it's been presented or prepared or all these things, uh, aside from this episode, that people can learn about what all of these students and future students are studying? Uh, there is a plan to make uh, this research public. Yeah, I don't know that we'll be publishing the students' papers uh, as they exist right now on a website, but we have hopes of co-authoring uh peer-reviewed published articles uh, with these students on this subject, uh, on, on a variety of these subjects. Uh, we hope at some point to have some sort of a public symposium uh, that the community could attend where we could uh, address some of these issues. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, those things are still very much in the works. Um, Matt, Matt, Matt is fond of saying that uh, we're approaching politically relevant issues today but through the slow, methodical, and careful lens of kind of academic scholarship. Yeah. And so this project, uh, it's exciting. I'm really looking forward to it, but it's going to be a slow-moving project. It's something that uh, we're going to spend an entire semester delving into these subjects, and then we're going to do it again next semester or, mm -hmm. or next fall. We, we hope to hire some of these students as research assistants to follow up on some of this research and delve more deeply um, and we hope to continue sharing this information with others um, and getting feedback from them and uh, moving to make sure that we're doing this the right way. If, some, um, if someone is interested in this and wants to either be able to support, is maybe interested in, in helping in whatever that they, way that they could, what would be the best way that they could get in contact with you guys? Uh, at history.byu.edu, Dr. Mason and I both have email addresses listed there on our respective profiles, and I think we'd be very receptive from hearing receptive to hearing from interested students in, in particular. Dr. Mason, something to add? apparently following Dr. Jones on Twitter. Apparently yeah. that's the, the solution to C that's the panacea. CC Jones 13, right? Is that right? That's right. I got it memorized. Well, everyone, thank you so much for your time. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime... We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.